I want to start right at the very beginning, because as I talk about the book and the purpose of the book, I think we learn a lot that we need to know from the first sentence of the book. So whoever has Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, would you, uh, Renee, would you read that, please? God, who at various times and in diverse ways spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of himself, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was made so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Thank you. The author of Hebrews wastes absolutely no time getting to his claim and the point of this book. Christ is superior over the old ways. If you have to summarize the book of Hebrews in one sentence, that's it. Christ is superior over the old ways. And he starts out the book with a mammoth sentence. Everything Renee just read, the first four verses are one sentence in Greek. It is if not the longest, top five longest sentences in the whole Bible. It is this huge encapsulated theological tome in the case of one sentence. And in Greek, as you've heard me say before, um, one of the ways that you can indicate what's most important about a sentence is word order. In English, we have very strict rules about the order that we put the words in the sentence. In Greek, they have a lot more freedom about how to organize things. So you could read a sentence in Greek where the words seem all jumbled up to us. But in Greek, you're allowed to do that because you're allowed to put the most important word at the beginning. So whether it's the subject or the verb or the direct object, it doesn't matter. If it's what you want to emphasize, you can put it at the beginning of the sentence. And the book of Hebrews and this first mammoth sentence begins with the word God. The first word of the first verse of the book of Hebrews is the word God. Um, He uses that word 68 times in this epistle. That is more uses of God per word than any other book in the New Testament. This is a book about God. And he's about to, the author, is about to talk about two different types of revelation, two different ways of God revealing himself. And it's easy for us the modern reader, just as it was easy for the ancient reader to get hung up on those ways. There's the dreams and the visions and the Urim and the Thummim and all this stuff that we would say was crazy stuff through which God spoke. And now the author is saying God speaks through scripture, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's going to make this distinction about two different ways of God speaking, but he wants the emphasis with the sentence to be on the speaker, not the way of speaking. God said all these things and God said all these things through lots of different ways. And we're going to, we're going to quibble intellectually over which ways are finished and which ways might continue. And there'll be disagreements about these types of things, but I want you to know this. It was always God speaking. The mechanism, the, the type of speech may have been different, but the one speaking was always the same. God is the focus of all revelation. And that's really important if you think about what I said the purpose of this book is, is to make the argument that Jesus Christ is superior to all the old ways. 
the author isn't saying God wasn't speaking in those ways. Therefore, they're bad. Don't go back to them. Jesus is the truth. The author is saying, no, 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 all that was true. All that was God speaking and all of it pointed to Jesus. And now that you have the better way, why would you ever go back to that? If you had, um, if you had a translation of something that skipped every third word, it was your favorite book, but it was originally written in Latin and you had a translation of it that the translator had skipped every third word. And then someone gave you a copy where every single word was translated. Why would you ever go back to the other one? Why would you, you know what? I thought it was intellectually challenging to really not know what was going on most of the time. That was really my kind of book. No, you wouldn't do that. You would go with the more clear revelation. They're both true, but having the more clear, we don't go back to the less clear. And that's going to be the point of this whole book. You have the better thing in Jesus. There is nothing that should ever make you go back to what you had before. Don't go back. And he'll say that a lot of different ways. And he'll say it sometimes in, um, uh, sometimes with a, a carrot and sometimes with a stick, sometimes with coaxing and sometimes with uh, threats and warnings. But that's what he's going to say over and over again. The big question that most readers have about the book of Hebrews, unfortunately, is not the most important question, but it is a, a one that we have to deal with, which is who wrote it? Every other book you look at in the New Testament, you know who wrote it. And you look at this one, and it's not particularly clear. There is no opening identification. The first few verses doesn't say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, or Peter to the church at such and such, or James, an apostle of the Lord. We don't have any of that. There is no opening identification where this is attributed to a person. We do have a handful of clues about who wrote it. Uh, but as I think you'll see in the minute, the way we use those clues is probably not what you expect. One clue is the Greek, the language that's used. You know your favorite author, and you can kind of tell when you're reading a passage of your favorite author. They have the way they write, the flow of the words, the sentence structure, the actual words they use. We hear this in our own speech, right? We get phrases that get stuck in our subconscious, and then we just use them a lot. And you'll become associated with those phrases. People will say, oh yeah, that's that thing you say over and over again. Right? We all have this. And writers have it too. They have a voice. They have a vocabulary that is, in some ways, unique to them. Well, this Greek used in the letter of Hebrews is very, very complicated. This is somebody with what we call a Hellenistic background. They grew up in Greek culture. They were trained in Greek culture. They write Greek better than anybody else in the New Testament writes Greek. Um, maybe Luke is, is uh, close, if not the same, but most authors are not. Um, there are words in Greek in this book that don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. This person had a very expansive vocabulary. And one other thing that points to being raised in a Greek culture is... This book quotes the Old Testament a lot. But when we say, quote, the Old Testament, to us, that just means one thing is, okay, the Old Testament. And maybe we'd say the NIV or the ESV or the King James or whatever translation we're using. But remember, if the Old Testament was in Hebrew, um, and teeny tiny portions in Aram, uh, anyway, if the Old Testament was in Hebrew, 
and I live in the Greek world, am I going to consult the Old Testament in the ESV or the NIV? Neither. King James, right? Because that was the language Jesus used, right? Yeah, no. If I'm going to quote the Old Testament, what am I going to use? Well, they had options too. They could have used the Hebrew manuscripts. They're just leave it at that. They could have gone back to the Hebrew or what is that in Roman numerals? 70. So that's the shorthand that theologians use to describe the Septuagint, which means 70. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's important because in Hebrews, whenever the author quotes the Old Testament, he's not quoting from this. He's quoting from this, which means that's the Old Testament that he was exposed to. That's the Old Testament that is that he's got memorized, that he's got floating around his head. Um, it's not that they're radically different and say different things, but it's like if you were translating something directly from Spanish or you were translating something that was Spanish and then was translated into Italian and then French and then to English, you'd be able to tell which version you were translating from by particular words that were used in word order and things like that. And our author of Hebrews uses the Greek. So Hellenistic background, this is clear to us. Secondly, this person seems not to be an apostle. Who's got Hebrews 2, 3, and 4? How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thank you. Did you hear how the author said he heard about these things. He didn't say, I heard these things from the Lord. He said, the apostles heard these things from the Lord and we heard these things from them. This is, this is not the type of language an apostle would normally use. If the question is, where does the message come from? God, or, you know, in this case, uh, sometimes in particular, Jesus. Sorry, you probably just want me to write Jesus. And then Jesus gave it to the apostles, the people who heard it directly from him. But the author of Hebrews doesn't claim to be here. The author claims he heard it from them. So we got a clue that this is not an apostle. Um, a simple clue is it seems to be male. The uh, chapter 1132 of Hebrews, which I didn't give out because it doesn't really matter, uses masculine word endings and masculine tenses. So that'd be a very unusual thing for a female author to do. Uh, And then who's got Hebrews 1323? You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Hey, it's somebody who knows and likes to hang out with Timothy. So there's another clue we got. Male, who knows Timothy, probably not an apostle from a Hellenistic background. These are the clues we have about our author. So who could it be? Well, the biggest candidate that people give is Paul. Is They say, hey, especially somebody who knows Timothy, somebody who's got good knowledge of both Greek and Hebrew, the Old Testament culture, the rituals and things like that. Um, 
that in somebody who is this smart, <laughs> that sounds like Paul. I'll take that. Um, one of the earliest collections of the New Testament letters, the epistles, is called P46. Whenever uh, archaeologists and scholars find, uh, they dig up and they find caves and they find tunnels, they find manuscripts, they find really early copies of the books of the Bible, they put those in groups and they give those groups names. So P46 is the name of a bunch of documents that they dug up in the same place, and they were a collection Think of it like a spiral-bound copy of all the New Testament letters. And Hebrews is in the section of Paul's letters. So you say, oh, well, in P46, whoever put this collection together believed that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, some of the church fathers, like Origen and Clement, these early century guys, these thought that Paul uh, wrote Hebrews. But one of the problems you face is we have a lot of Paul's letters. We know a ton about Paul's vocabulary, his writing style, the themes that are important to him. We know a ton about his ability in Greek, and Paul's Greek is pretty mediocre. Paul's a smart guy, uh, but his Greek is just fine. This person's Greek is brilliant. So there's a little bit of a claim, and even the early church fathers saw that. Uh, Clement said, yeah, I think Paul wrote this. There's no way Paul wrote the Greek. So it must be the case that Paul wrote this in Hebrew. And then somebody like Luke translated it into Greek, which is why the Greek is so good. Or maybe this was a sermon that Paul preached and somebody transcribed it into Greek. And then that would help make sense of it, at least the the Greek uh, levels. The... Uh, I said that P46 has it in uh, in the Pauline letters, but the Muratorian canon, um, the Muratorian canon is the earliest piece of paper we have that lists all the books of the New Testament. So as the letters started to be passed around the churches in the early centuries, they started to keep lists of which letters are authoritative from God and which letters go in the trash can because there were a whole bunch you know the history channel loves to talk about the hidden gospels and the secret gospels that the church doesn't want you to know about it has nothing to do with the church doesn't want you to know about it's that there were too many of them there were hundreds and there were thousands of false gospels and false letters that were written they would go to the church the church not not like the pope they would go to a local church like the church in Corinth and the elders at the church in Corinth would look at it and say, mm, this is crazy talk, trash. And so that happened to a whole bunch of, of, of letters and of gospels. And so the, what they would do is they would write down lists that they would circulate among the churches and they would say, these are the letters that are from God. The apostles have testified that they either actually wrote this or that this is um, lines up with what Jesus taught. These are true. And so they would write these lists. Well, the Muratorian canon is the oldest piece of paper we have that's one of those lists. It's from the 7th century. And it has Hebrews, but not as one of Paul's letters. So, in general, though there were some in the early church who thought that Paul wrote this, um, it wasn't a widely held position. I would tell you, I don't think Paul wrote this. I think we have the only clues that we have are clues that suggest that he didn't. There is no other Pauline book in the New Testament that is anonymous. Paul puts his name on everything else he writes in the entire New Testament. 
The Greek isn't Paul's, which I mentioned, but you could say, okay, well, maybe it was written in Hebrews and then somebody else translated it into Greek. But forget about the exact words for a minute. The themes aren't Paul's. We have lots of Paul's letters. It's easy for us to read those letters and say, these are the themes that are important for Paul. Paul was very concerned with justification before God, the law exposing our sin, Jesus making us righteous, declaring us righteous. Paul has a way of talking and he's got themes that he's very concerned with. The way that Paul communicates is very consistent across all the other letters. Then you get to this one and it is radically different. It's like if you read the first three Gospels and then you read the Gospel of John, your first thought is, this is a Gospel? Because <laughs> the first three Gospels are history books. Well, we went here and we went there and we said this thing and we said that thing. you know. And the first three Gospels begin with Jesus either being born or being baptized. Okay, it's about this man. And how does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word. Like, whoa, I got a poet man here. right? Same thing with Hebrews compared with Paul's letters. Paul's letters are in Pauline style, and Hebrews is written in something that's very different. The, for example, we're going to read, uh, we'll do an entire week on the concept of Christ as the high priest. That is a major theme of the book of Hebrews, that you had all these priests before and you had these high priests before, but Jesus is the ultimate high priest. That is a major theme of Hebrews, and you know how many times Paul mentions that in all of his letters? None. Not even one. Um, also, I don't think you can overcome this if you think that it's Paul. Uh, unless you're going to say that it's a sermon Paul gave that somebody else wrote and they weren't claiming to transcribe it perfectly and they were referring to the sermon itself as being hearing from one of the ones who heard. I think it's very difficult to deal with the fact that this person claims not to be an apostle where in Paul's letters, what does he do? He does just the opposite. He says, the reason you should believe my message is that I heard it directly from Jesus. Why would you make that argument in one place and then make this argument in this book? Well, it doesn't really matter who you heard it from. When he's got all these other parts where he says, it really matters who you heard it from, and I heard it from Jesus. Um, So I think we can. the most we can say about who the author of Hebrews is, this is the only statement I make with confidence. Paul didn't write it. I have no idea who wrote it, but I'm confident I can be wrong. I'm confident it was not Paul. Who else could it be? Who else could have written it? Well, Barnabas could have written it. Barnabas knew Timothy well. Um, Barnabas in the book of Acts is referred to as a son of encouragement. Who's got Hebrews 13, 22? I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation that I've written to you briefly. So, That exhortation word is exactly the same word as encouragement. So Barnabas is called a son of encouragement, and the author of this letter says, I bring you a word of encouragement. So clearly it's Barnabas. That's the entire argument for Barnabas being the author of this book. You see why I'm not real confident in that. That's about all that we got. Uh, How about Apollos? That's what Martin Luther thought. He's a smart guy. Apollos was from Alexandria, Egypt which was the center of Greek culture and thought. And so it makes sense that he would be a brilliant Greek scholar. Um, 
that's where Philo was from. So the ideas um, in Hebrews, we're going to hear about dualism a lot, shadows and realities, um, the, the, the real thing, the substance thing being reflected in this mirror thing. Uh, that's a very duality idea, which is a Philo idea, which gets us back to the Greek thing. Um, uh, that's all we got. <laughs> what about Clement of Rome? He was one of the apostolic fathers at the end of the first century. Um, he wrote an extra biblical book, multiple extra biblical books. But in First Clement, which is one of his letters that's not in the Bible, he quotes Hebrews a lot. He really liked the book of Hebrews. So maybe he wrote it. That's about all we got. Priscilla and Aquila are given as potential authors. They studied with Apollos, which we see in Acts. Sometimes the author in this uses uh, the word we when they could just use the word I. So that you think, well, maybe there's two authors there and not just one. Um, but that's not actually real weird. Don't you say that in your house sometimes? Uh, we need to do a better job cleaning up the kitchen after dinner. Right? We need, it's, it's no more weird in Greek that you would just sometimes use the plural for an individual. It's, it's a pretty common way of writing or speaking. Um, so in the end, I would tell you authorship. We don't know. We don't know. Um, what's interesting and important is that while the authorship question has never been settled, the authority question was never in dispute. The book of Hebrews was never on a list of questionable, questionable books. There is no meaningful person in church history who ever looked at Hebrews and said, I don't think this is from God. This doesn't belong here. You have that with some other letters and they were wrong, but there was at least some, some dispute, some controversy around them. There is no controversy around this book. It was received and accepted by the churches from day one um, as authoritative. And so its authority comes not from its authorship. If the author wanted the authority of this letter to be based in the authorship, he would have told us who he was. He wanted the authority in this letter to be based in God as the speaker. So there, back to verse 1, God is the speaker. First word, first verse is God. That's a whole bunch of stuff to take in. Some of you, I think, will have found that interesting. Some of you will have been bored out of your mind. But it's the controversial question about this book, so I felt like I needed to cover it. Any questions or disputes about that? Anyone else you've heard as a potential author? Jake? I mean, the common one is Paul isn't the author, but Luke, uh, specifically, I've heard, it wrote it as a collection. He traveled with Paul, with Timothy, yeah. he collected his sermons, and that's what Claim it to be, I am Paul writing this. Right. The collection of sermons he gave. Yeah, it's certainly possible. The, the Greek is closer to Luke's than any other known New Testament author. The one that personally for me is the biggest factor, and it doesn't have to be for you, is the themes. This book is going to be filled with themes that don't appear sometimes anywhere else in the New Testament, and definitely not in any of Paul's letters. And they're not minor themes. They're the point of this book. And it seems really weird that Paul would segment out this tiny period of his life where he was obsessed with these themes that he never mentioned before and never mentioned again. And if you take the Luke theory, it's that Paul would have preached about these themes regularly and never written about them to another church. Um, it just doesn't work for me. Let's talk about dating for a minute. How old is this book? When was it written? 
Well, here we can use the clues to get a much more specific answer. I told you that Hebrews was quoted a lot in 1 Clement. We know with 100% certainty that 1 Clement was written in AD 96. So Hebrews was written before that. Uh, Hebrews twice refers to the temple as still standing. We know the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So we can say Hebrews was written before that. Um, Hebrews, who's got Hebrews 12, 4? Do you read that? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So they are not under violent persecution. You hear that? You've not yet resisted to the point. Well, when did Nero's reign start? Because that's when the violence, persecution, and the resisting unto shedding your blood started. That was AD 60. That doesn't sound. 65. Yeah, Nero 65, 66. So this book would have to be written before Nero. So that's the range I would give you. Somewhere between 60 and 65 AD, uh, the letters to the Hebrews was written. Uh, so this is early stuff. If you think about that, lots of, this is something else, just, just a general point to keep in mind as you'll hear the history channel and PBS and uneducated, um, spear chuckers in our culture who just want to try and tear down your faith. They'll say, you can't even trust these letters because the church and power and blah, blah, blah. And who knows what's true and blah, blah, blah. This letter was written and came to the churches in AD 60 to 65. There are a whole lot of people still in those churches who heard Jesus preach, who walked with the apostles. There are a whole lot of people who heard the message from God himself. Do you think if these letters told lies and said crazy talk, those people wouldn't have known any better? That's exactly how they did the process I mentioned earlier, where they would see a letter and they'd say, nope, this is nonsense. I heard it from Jesus' mouth. I heard it from Paul's mouth. I heard it from uh, uh, John's mouth. I know this isn't true. Throw it in the trash. And so we have so much confidence in the New Testament because of how early these letters were written. They weren't written 500 years later where people say, is that what Jesus said? You know, it's... Doesn't sound right, but I don't really remember. This was written to people who heard him. (laughs) And so we have a great deal of confidence that the junk got thrown out and that the stuff that was from God was received. Who's the audience? Who's this written to? Well, (laughs) the uh, title of the letter is To the Hebrews. So I feel pretty confident that we can say this letter was written to the Hebrews. And that makes sense. There's going to be a bunch of obscure Old Testament references in this book. You need to know this is the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. You need to know your Old Testament. It's going to reference the Old Testament sacrificial and worship systems. Um, the author knows these things. His writing style says he's aware of these things. There are numerous connections in this book between the old and the new. There's a reference in this book to Melchizedek. Who in the world knows who Melchizedek is if they're not a Hebrew and they haven't read their Old Testament? Um, and so the themes of this book indicate that it's to the Hebrews and that it's to Hebrew Christians, not Hebrews who've remained Hebrews, because he's going to say again and again in this book, don't go back to the old ways. Jesus is the better way. You found the better way. Stay with Jesus. Hold firm with Jesus. So it's not a evangelism book. It's a book to Jews who have believed in Jesus Christ, who are considering going back. He is concerned about their temptation to fall away. Um, 
And then because of all the Greek stuff, the quality of the Greek and the Hellenistic philosophical ideas, it's clear that this is written to Hellenistic Jews. This is not written to the Jews that are actually in Jerusalem. This is written to the Jews that are scattered, what they call the diaspora, the Jews that have gone into the Greek world and now are being confronted and faced with all of this, the the beginnings of this persecution, certainly intellectual persecution, what you believe is crazy. You used to be part of a respectable religion. We didn't like the Jews, but at least that was an old respectable religion. Now you're part of this crazy newfangled cult of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of temptation there to say, you know what, we'll go back to the one that wasn't quite so persecuted, uh, which is hard for us to believe. Jews saying that Christians are more subject to persecution than Judaism, uh, but it was a, a different world 2,000 years ago. Last thing I want to talk about with the letter itself is the doctrinal and the practical purpose. And that's because I want I want to leave you with something to consider as we study this book or any other book. I'm going to talk about the doctrinal purpose of this book and the practical purpose of this book, but I want it to be clear that the doctrinal point is raised to fill a practical need. This book has a lot of deep and rich theology. We're going to talk a lot about uh, somewhat complex theological and philosophical ideas. But the author doesn't teach those because he says, I think you should be smarter. I think you should be more into theology. I think we need to exercise your philosophy muscle. The author teaches these because he has a real practical concern. People are falling away from the church. People are walking away from faith in Jesus Christ and going back to the old ways, going back to what they saw as the safer and the easier religion. And so he's very practically minded. The doctrinal point of the book is the absolute supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than anything that has come before. He's clearer than anything that's come before. He's greater than anything. And the reason why this book is so much about sacrifices and priesthood is to show the inadequacy of those things. Those things were never going to save you. At their best, those things were supposed to show you that they weren't enough. And so it's, it's deep theology... But it's practical theology. And doctrine and practice ought to go hand in hand and support one another because they're the same thing. If we're imbalanced with doctrine and theology, it causes all kinds of problems in the church because it's easy to say on the one hand, well, my concern is with practical, obedient living. I just want to follow Jesus. I'm not concerned with all this highfalutin theology. But this implies that you could go through your life behaving a certain way, either for no reasons or for reasons that you don't believe. And that is not true. You will get to a point in your life where you will say, nope, if I don't have good reasons for why I'm doing these things, I'm not going to do them. And so the purpose of the letter to the Hebrews and the purpose of all this doctrinal theology is to give us the reason, to give us the theological grounding for why we would do the practical things. Why would I love my neighbor as myself? Why would I come to worship? Why would I raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Why would I tell the truth? Why would I not cheat at work to get ahead? Why would I love God more than money? Why do I do these things? Very practical things. But we've got to have doctrinal reasons that we believe for doing them or when push comes to shove, we'll do what he was afraid this audience would do and just wander off. Just say, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to go do something else.